My name is Sarah Basehart, and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm a member of your board of trustees, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we in Columbia reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, minister, as well as a talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. I want to express my gratitude to all within our community who are striving to keep us connected and to provide meaningful worship services during this unusual and trying time. Whoever you are, wherever you are from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests who are watching this service. 
We hope that you will join us in the future when we return to worship at the Owen Brown Interfaith Center so that we will have a chance to meet and welcome you in person. We have many announcements this morning. This afternoon, you're invited to attend the monthly Black Lives Matter vigil in Columbia from 4 to 5 p.m. to give witness to the problem of anti-Black racism in our neighborhood, nation, and world. Please wear masks, observe physical distancing, and bring your own signs. Join us to show that all lives will matter when Black lives matter. A reminder to register for UUCC's CHOPT competition and this summer's wizarding camp. Registration for CHOPT will close this Friday, so Robin and Kelly have time to purchase ingredients to get to your doorstep for the competition next Sunday, May 16th. How is our communication? UUCC is seeking your input in order to determine which kinds of information you wish to receive, in which ways, and how often. Please complete the communication survey that will appear in your inbox this afternoon so we can understand how best to connect with you all. Thank you. The executive team has proposed a severely restricted budget for the next fiscal year. Because of a pledge shortfall and increases in several non-discretionary expenses, the budget will have all staff furloughed without pay for one week. The staff will, for a second year in a row, not receive a cost of living adjustment and also see their non-salary compensations reduced. In addition, program funding, as reflected in our incubators, will be cut between 50 and 66%. Our contribution to the UUA will be reduced by 75%. And other expenses have been cut or frozen wherever possible. The proposed budget may be reviewed on the annual meeting webpage. The executive team will be hosting additional budget workshops before the annual meeting. Those will be announced soon. And it doesn't have to be this way. Your congregation needs your financial support now to avoid a budget crisis. If you have not yet made your pledge for next year, or are in a position to pledge more, please do so now. Pledge information can be found at uucolumbia.net slash pledge. UUCC's annual congregation meeting will take place virtually on Sunday, June 6th at 6.30 p.m. All UUCC members are encouraged to attend. Members must register in advance please see the annual meeting webpage for registration and other information. Non-members will have an opportunity to observe the meeting. These details are being worked out and will be announced soon. The Trust and Reconciliation Committee is working to finalize its report to the board after listening to 89 members of our UUCC community. This Tuesday, May 11th, the team will present its recommendations to the board at its meeting and expects the full written report to be completed, complete by later this month. Please see the link in the chat for more information. Thank you. Good morning, UUCC, and thank you, Sarah, for that slew of announcements. Um, my name is Valerie Shu. 
My pronouns are she and her, and I serve as your director of Youth and Young Adult Ministries. So if you take a look in the chat, um, you'll see a bunch of links and announcements showing up there too. You'll also find a link to our online visitor form. If this is your first time worshiping with us, or if you are a regular guest or visitor, please take a moment to fill out this form. Um, we would love the chance to say hi and get to know you. And if you prefer to follow along with the traditional order of service, there's one available on the UUCC website for you to download. Um, Jen will be dropping that link in the chat as well. And if you have a joy or sorrow to share with the congregation, please email it to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. We will read, a, we'll, we'll read your joy or sorrow aloud later in the service so that we as a community know to celebrate with you or grieve with you and to hold you in our thoughts. And that is it for announcements and housekeeping this morning. So... Since 1992, around 405 years after the first Asians arrived in what would become the Americas, the month of May has been recognized in the United States as Asian American and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. Last winter, Reverend Page approached me about leading this worship service, the one you're at today, right now, on May 9th, Mother's Day. I immediately thought I'd build this service around the fact of May being AAPI Heritage Month. An hour later, I changed my mind, and then I changed it again, and I kept changing it back and forth until it was too late to change it anymore, and here we are today. I flip-flopped because in recent months, white people around this country have suddenly awakened to the ongoing existence of and racism perpetuated against Asians in America. Between marches and hashtags and think pieces, speaking out against anti-Asian racism seems to be the buzzy new trend through which white people can perform their wokeness. But where were these hashtags last spring when Asian Americans in this very congregation reported encountering racist slurs in grocery stores in Jim Rouse's progressive paradise of Columbia? Where were the think pieces when two white men were fined a mere $3,000 for beating Vincent Chin to death? Tell me about the nice white people who marched when 120,000 of their Japanese neighbors vanished overnight, their assets and properties seized by their own government. Anti-Asian racism in its covert and overt forms are not new. And I hesitated to plan the service because my Asian Americanness is not something I want to perform for you, a predominantly white congregation. Even now with the service underway, I feel uncomfortable because I do not want to be perceived as pandering to the moment. And frankly, I do not want to give you the satisfaction of feeling good about yourself for attending this service. Because feeling good is not what brings us together ever as a religious community. We come together to struggle together on our spiritual journeys. We gather and worship to challenge each other to live our values. We remind each other of these purposes every Sunday morning in our congregational covenant. And so today, I ask you to lean into this spirit of struggle and of challenge, this spirit that defines our Unitarian Universalist worldview as we consider what it means to be Asian in America. What is Asian America? Who is Asian American? The writer J. Caspian King observed wryly that Asian American is mostly a meaningless term. 
Well, nobody grows up speaking Asian American. Nobody sits down to Asian American food with their Asian American parents. And nobody goes on pilgrimages back to their motherland of Asian America. Historically, Asian American was a term coined to describe a political identity, an identity that rose up in the 1960s as part of a pan-racial, pan-ethnic solidarity struggle to root out colonialism in academia, led by brave, strategic, and activated students in campuses across the United States under the banner of the Third World Liberation Front. According to historian William Way, the Asian American movement was rooted in a past history of oppression and a present struggle for liberation. But over the years, the term has lost all its power, all its rage. It is no longer attached to a political movement. It no longer connotes liberation or radical solidarity. What was formerly an activating term is more like an adjective now rather than a political identity, says the scholar Karen Ishizuka. Because how can you describe an identity that is meant to include Americans with family origins in 48 countries? How can a single term represent over 23 million Americans who speak hundreds of languages and come from hundreds of diverse cultures and ethnicities? Asian Americans are from Pakistan and the Philippines and everywhere in between. One out of seven Asians in America is undocumented. In New York City, Asian Americans have the highest poverty rates of any group. While in Howard County, Asian Americans comprise 19% of the population and earn a median household income of $125,000. How do you capture this diversity within a single term, Asian American? How do you contain this many multitudes of stories, experiences, histories, cultures, classes, ethnicities within this one expression? When you say Asian America, I ask, which one? This is what we'll consider together today. And in the spirit of inquiry and struggle and challenge, I now invite Sunanda to ring the bell to call us into worship. Sunanda, Sima, Rohan, and Reva will share their family ritual of lighting a flame and saying a Vedic prayer with us. This is a traditional oil lamp. Shubhankaroti kalyanam arogyam dhanasampada shatrubuddhi vinashaya deepajyoti namostute O flame of the lamp, brighten our life with auspicious goodness bounty. Physical health, wealth, prosperity. Extinguish all dark thoughts of animosity. We bow down to you in worship. 
So please join me in speaking together the words of our congregational covenant that will appear on your screen as we remind ourselves of our promises to one another and why we gather. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now you are going to be unmuted or allowed to unmute for a moment to greet each other. Go to gallery view and wave at each other and see each other's faces. It's good to see you all here. Hi, everybody. So last September, 14-year-old Kira Sky Yip and her brother Barbara Yao, they made a video together as a way to express a few things on their minds. Kira did all the drawings and animations using skills she learned last summer, and her brother recorded the voices. Kira and her mom saw a problem and wanted to find a way to help. One way you can help when you see a problem is by talking about it, asking questions, and encouraging other people to talk about it too. So here's the video they made to do just that. Robbie the rice ball. I am so happy to meet you. Can we be friends? Even though there is still a bad virus out there, I have been having fun at home. I've been playing Minecraft, watching Netflix, and rolling around in my home. Wee! What have you been doing? There is still something that has been bothering me recently. Me and my friends have been getting bullied because we look different from most Americans. It makes me sad. Does this make you sad too? You see, my friends and I are Asian American. We were born in America, but we have parents or grandparents who came to America from a country in Asia. Most Americans have family members who came here from another country too. Where did your family come from? Anyway, my friends and I are being bullied because some people are blaming Asian Americans for causing this virus. This is confusing to us because we have nothing to do with it. We have been staying home, doing work, and playing games just like everybody else. Do you think a virus is our fault? Do you think it's my fault? Another confusing thing is that some people keep telling us to go back to our country. Just be our American, America's our country. We have nowhere else to go. I think some people are mean to other people who look different from them. Are you nice to people who look different from you? Is it okay to be different? Is being different okay? 
A lot of Asian Americans are now very sad, angry, and afraid to go outside. I don't think anyone should be bullied just because they are different. What do you think? I would like to know if we can still be friends, even though I am Asian American and may look different from you. Can we still be friends? We hope that you and Robbie can still be friends. You can keep in touch with Robbie on Facebook at Robbie the Rice Ball. Thanks for watching our video. Robbie the rice ball and his friends felt sad because of what they were going through. Instead of just feeling sad by themselves, they started asking questions. Questions like the ones you heard in the video. Are you nice to people who look different from you? Here in this community, I think most or maybe all of us do our best to be nice to people who look different from us. But how do you know that other people feel that you are being nice to them? Have you ever accidentally done something not nice that you didn't know about? Robbie also asked the question, is it okay to be different? What is something that is different about you that makes you stand out from your friends? Is it something you're proud of? Is it something you feel like you have to hide sometimes? Maybe these are questions you can ask your family and have a conversation about this afternoon. And don't forget to ask the most important question. I think the most important question Robbie asked is, what do you think? Because most of the time, we have no way of knowing what other people are thinking. That's part of what makes being human so exciting. Getting to know other humans is like going on a treasure hunt. We get to go on the sometimes scary journey of asking them questions and digging deep and finding out what treasures, what light they bring to the world. What do you think? Robbie and his friends felt sad because they were being bullied. Sometime this year, you've probably heard about a rise in anti-Asian racism sweeping the country. The numbers are staggering. In some cities, reported incidents are at a 223% increase compared to the same period pre-pandemic. A week ago today, two Korean-American women, sisters ages 66 and 67, were attacked, struck repeatedly over their heads with a cinder block as they left work less than two miles from my house. But I wonder, has there been an actual increase in covert racist violence or merely a perceived increase because of rising awareness and outreach resulting in more accurate documentation? What do you think? On March 16, this long bubbling cauldron of violence and hate finally caught the attention of the mainstream in Atlanta's devastating shootings. A week later, many of you gathered at the Columbia Lakefront for a Stop Asian Hate rally co-sponsored by this congregation. At the rally, UUCC member Carla Gates spoke on behalf of her organization, Black Lives Activists of Columbia. Carla has agreed to share her words from the rally again with us today. Carla? Hi, thank you, Valerie. Good morning, UUCC. Uh, as stated, my name is Carla Gates. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. So I gave this, um, gave this speech, not the space, on March 24th in the wake of the Atlanta spa murders where six Asian American women were killed. 
as part of the Black Lives Activists of Columbia or Black Leadership Collective. So a little bit about Black before I get into my speech. Black is a radical, grasping at the root, progressive, Black-centered organization that seeks to dismantle systemic racism, other systems of oppression, and promote Black equity and wellness in Columbia, Howard County, and the broader Maryland community. We unequivocally affirm that all Black lives matter, regardless of actual or perceived sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status, or location. Our mission is to promote Black equity in all spheres of life, to provide a space to nurture and sustain Black wellness, and to build relationships, to build skills and political analysis uh, to act for change. So it was in the spirit of building relationships uh, that the Leadership Collective decided to speak at the rally on March 24th. Here is what I said. I am here, Black is here, to stand in solidarity with our Asian American Pacific Islander or AAPI family. We know that you are grieving and we bear witness to and empathize with your pain. We know that these Asian American women were murdered by the hateful toxic fiction that stereotypes these women as simultaneously hypersexual and passive beings who are somehow responsible for the sexual concerns of men. They were murdered by the intersection of misogyny, anti-Asian bias, and easy access to guns. Anti-Asian hate is literally a centuries-old lie that can be traced to the Los Angeles Chinese Massacre in 1871, enacted in American law with the Page Act of 1875 that specifically banned the immigration of Chinese women with the disingenuous pretense that the women who emigrated here were immigrating to be prostitutes. Interesting how the anti-Asian racism of the 1800s has led to the murder of Asian women using the same arguments and pretenses in 2021. Well, it is 2021, and it is time to stop this madness. It is time to recognize, name, and debunk these myths as the racist lies that they are. It is time to stop making our Asian American Pacific Islander family perpetual foreigners or using the so-called model minority myth as a wedge separating this family from other communities of color. It is time for all of us to come together and recognize that white supremacy and patriarchy are the parents of racism, xenophobia, homophobia, transphobia, misogyny, classism, ableism, and all the other isms of hate that destroy the dignity of everyone they encounter. It is time to say enough. You will not steal our dignity any longer. We will work together for the good of all humanity. We will honor and celebrate our unique histories because that is what makes our lives rich with joy. We will celebrate the value of each human life. We will honor the worth, value, and dignity of each of us. We will work to make this vision a reality because none of us are free till all of us are free and we are going to get free. Please join me in singing hymn 1017, 
We are building a new way, verses 1 and 2. working to be free, we just sang. In classrooms all across the United States, eighth graders have been prompted by their language arts teachers to pen essays on this topic. What freedom are you working for? I can only speak for myself, a first-generation, light-skinned, East Asian American, but I am working to be free of that white gaze that simultaneously identifies me as a perpetual foreigner always the other, never American enough, my answer to the question, where are you from, never satisfying, and celebrates me as a model minority, dutiful, hardworking, educated, as part of white supremacy power's eagerness to uphold anti-blackness in our American systems. Carla's speech hit upon key moments in Asian American history that exemplify this tension. Chinese laborers were hardworking enough, though alien, strange, dirty, diseased, to be imported by white merchants to build their railroads, but they weren't white enough, American enough, to be their neighbors. Two years after the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, built upon the backs of immigrant laborers, none of whom appear in the celebratory photos taken at Promontory Point, the L.A. massacre to which Carla alluded occurred. The largest mass lynching in the United States history. 500 white men enraged by a rumor left 18 dead, including a 14-year-old boy. Incidents like these were not isolated. In Rock Springs, Wyoming, white men, believing that the preponderance of immigrant laborers in the region would diminish the value of their jobs, murdered 28 and injured 15 Asian immigrants in one afternoon. Many burned alive in their homes, their corpses strewn about to be eaten by dogs, and chased the remaining 500 out of town to live in boxcars. I didn't learn this history until recent years. It was willfully kept from me, and it was probably willfully kept from you too. I spent my life believing the lie that there is a place for me in this white country, in this white society, and I diminished and contorted myself to fit that white gaze in order to serve that lie. And then one day, I learned this history, and I learned there was never intended to be a place for me. That this country, an experiment in white supremacy and colonialism, will only embrace those who are white enough, Anglo enough, wealthy enough. And that's okay, 
Because in learning this history, I also learned that I do not have to be content with this country, this experiment in white supremacy. The history of Asians in America follows this well-worn pattern. First, global imperialism by white supremacy forces leads families and individuals in countries around the world to seek employment and opportunity in America. Second, those who make it here face oppressive discrimination in the form of lynching, segregation, and racist rhetoric. And then step three, the United States government considers or passes legislation banning individuals from those specific countries. But the story doesn't end there. There is a step four. Immigrants organize and fight. Immigrants like laundromat owner Yik Wo, whose tenacious fight for his family's right to run their business resulted in the 1886 Supreme Court decision that extended the rights of due process to people of all races and nationalities under the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause, a decision that has resonated throughout history as a step toward liberty and justice for all. Immigrants organize and fight. Like Tai Leung Schultz, the first Asian American woman to cast a vote in this country, who rescued hundreds of girls from forced prostitution and sex slavery, who used her position as an interpreter at the imposing Angel Island Immigration Detention Center, which functioned as the inverse of Ellis Island, keeping Asians out rather than inviting Europeans in, to quietly subvert the oppressive immigration laws of her day. Like the family of nine-year-old Martha Lum, who brought the first case to desegregate the nation's schools to the Supreme Court in 1924, three decades before Brown v. Board. Like Bhagat Singh Tind, the first man to wear a turban in the United States Army when he enlisted near the end of World War I, whose citizenship was revoked four days after naturalization because of his race, but who petitioned his case all the way to the Supreme Court until the highest court of this land unanimously declared that Bhagat Singh Tim was not white enough to be an American. Immigrants organize and fight, like Yuri Kochiyama, imprisoned with her family in Arkansas as a young adult, her crime being Japanese, who dedicated her life to the political struggle of freedom for all people, whose radical solidarity put her at the side of Malcolm X as he died, and whose radical hospitality sustained the families of political prisoners around the world. Every step of the way, they fought back. In learning this history, I learned that the way things are, are not the way things have to be. This country, these United States, may be an experiment in white supremacy, but it doesn't have to be this way. This is freedom to me. Freedom means knowing my history. Those who fail to look back to where they came from will not reach where they're going, said Jose Rizal, the great Filipino leader who led a nonviolent revolution against Spanish imperialism. When I know history, I know myself. To have no history is to have no self. My history tells me there is a future for me, and I can shape that future. That is my freedom. Here at UUCC, um, it is our tradition to donate 100% of the financial offerings made the second Sunday of every month to an organization that is doing work to advance our stated values in the world. This month, UUCC's environmental justice team selected the National American Pacific American Women's Forum, NAPOF for short, to be the recipient of our second Sunday donations because of the organization's work to educate and empower women and girls an essential strategy in combating the looming climate disaster. 
Learn more about NAPOF in this three-minute video celebrating the organization's 20th anniversary in 2016. After the video, Jeremy will share music while you take a moment to make your donation by following the instructions on the screen. Thank you for your generosity. Our story here at the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, known as NAPOF, began as an inspiration from the 1995 United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women in Beijing. And it was the spirit of Beijing in terms of how to bring Beijing home that became kind of the genesis for the birthing of NAPOF. NAPOF was that very vehicle established by 157 founding sisters in Los Angeles in September of 1996. Over the last 20 years, NAPOF has worked tirelessly on issues that impact Asian American women and girls advancing their social justice and human rights. Um, on a personal level, NAPOF has really been sort of my, um, you know, the sisterhood really, my emotional um, support, you know, the, the network that I supports my soul and my heart. Order for real change to happen, you have to combine the cultural with the political. And uh, NAPOF is just one of the only organizations that really fight uh, for our voices um, in the Capitol, um, on the Hill. So uh, that part definitely cannot be understated. We do policy advocacy work so that there's a voice for us and we take our seat at the table and we represent the needs, the experiences, the desires the hopes and dreams of our community. All the way from city council meetings, all the way to you know the White House and in, in the halls of Congress. NAPOF has been leading the fight for reproductive justice, immigrant rights, and economic justice for Asian American Pacific Islander women and girls. I say reproductive justice is the most important issue we have to work on because I think it's the last uh, area of struggle that um, is awkward, uncomfortable, nobody wants to talk about sex. I think the space that NAPOF has taken to uplift some of the unique experiences that the API community, particularly API women and girls experience in coming to this country is one that is sorely needed in the conversations that are happening around immigrant rights and immigration right now. She grows up in a country where she does not have to fear for her safety, that she has choices, that she does not have to be separated from her family because of who she is, that her identity as a, a biracial child, having lesbian parents, um, growing up in a bilingual household, that becomes the norm. NAPOF has grown to 15 chapters and over 8,000 activists. Now we look ahead to becoming a stronger game changer and moving our stories to the next level. There's more to the story. There's more to the story. There is 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 more to the story. 
Stand with us. Raise your voices. Won't you help us bring about another 20 years of change and justice? I'm Jen Hayashi, reading an excerpt uh, from Minor Feelings and Asian American Reckoning by Kathy Park Hong. When I hear the phrase, Asians are next in line to be white, I replace the word white with disappear. Asians are next in line to disappear. We are reputed to be so accomplished, so law-abiding, we will disappear into this country's amnesiac fog. We will not be the power, but become absorbed by power, not share the power of whites, but be stooges to a white ideology that exploited our ancestors. This country insists that our racial identity is beside the point, that it has nothing to do with being bullied or passed over for promotion or cut off every time we talk. Our race has nothing to do with this country even, which is why we're often listed as other in polls and why we're hard to find in racial breakdowns on reported rape or workplace discrimination or domestic abuse. It's like being ghosted, I suppose, where deprived of all social cues, I have no relational gauge for my own behavior. 
I ransacked my mind for what I could have done, could have said. I stopped trusting what I see, what I hear. My ego is in free fall while my superego is boundless, railing that my existence is not enough, never enough. So I become compulsive in my efforts to do better, be better, blindly following this country's gospel of self-interest, proving my individual worth by expanding my net worth until I vanish. Sometimes I wonder if the Asian American experience is what it's like when you're thinking about everyone else, but nobody else is thinking about you. The Korean American actor Steven Yeun said this in an interview this February. I knew exactly what he meant. I spent most of my life wondering if I existed, reading stories that were not mine, thinking about history and issues and questions that affected everybody else but me, worshiping a God that didn't need me to serve him. It felt like living behind a one-way glass, shouting and waving at people in a room who couldn't see me, watching them as they continued on with their business, only occasionally hearing my voice and shrugging it off as ambient noise. What it's like when you're thinking about everyone else, but nobody else is thinking about you. But now, just a few short months after this interview was published, maybe things are changing. For starters, this congregation co-sponsored that Stop Asian Hate rally, and you're here at this service. You came here of your own volition, knowing you would have to listen to me talk. So now that you're thinking about me, let me tell you who I am. Let me tell you who I am not. I am not your scapegoat. From the scapegoating of Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor to the scapegoating of South Asians, specifically those of Muslim, Hindu, or Sikh faith in the months following 9-11, South Asians murdered in broad daylight at gas stations for their clothing. 1,200 people detained by the United States government in two months, locked up without evidence and accused of fitting the profile. Hoisting blame and responsibility upon Americans of Asian descent is as much an American tradition as apple pie. The words of your former president elucidating precisely who is to blame for the current global pandemic, a belief embraced far and wide with devastating consequences. I am not your exotic cuisine. My food neither poisons you nor is it yours to claim. To the white Michelin-starred chef who last week decided that Japanese restaurants generally aren't Japanese enough, tell me what caricature would satisfy the colonizer's palate? I am not your exotic cuisine, but if you love my food, then learn my history. I am not your sexist, twisted fetish. I am neither your lotus blossom, the subservient, feminine, docile, meek, submissive for your sexual conquest, nor am I your dragon lady, the cunning, manipulative dominatrix here to conquer you. I am not your model minority. I am not that mythical construct dreamed up by sociologist William Peterson in the New York Times, January 1966, in an article that painted a stereotype of the industrious, rule-abiding, family-oriented Asian American, positioning Asian Americans in direct opposition to prevailing stereotypes of Black Americans. It was strategic, and it was intentional a blatant castigation of black power movements of the 1960s. If the Asian American can rise out of quotas and concentration camps to middle-class success through discipline and self-sufficiency, then black America, you ought to do the same. The model minority myth is insidious in its racism, 
rendering invisible those Asian Americans overwhelmed by the burdens of poverty and denying the racialized experiences of Asian Americans and positioning Asian Americans as a racial threat, all while denigrating other groups of color. I am not your model minority. I am not a token, a wedge, a pawn for anti-blackness. The model minority myth is yet another manifestation in a long history of white supremacy pitting Asian Americans against black Americans to uphold white power. From plantation owners importing Chinese laborers to the American South as a strategy to avoid paying wages to newly emancipated persons, to the disingenuous high profile lawsuits at prestigious educational institutions led by a white man named Edward Bloom who is actively recruiting Asian Americans to be the face of his efforts to dismantle affirmative action once and for all to, dare I say it, the 2019 fight over redistricting Howard County Public Schools. It becomes clearer to me by the day that in the words of the playwright Frank Chin in 1974, Whites love us because we're not black. It may sound flattering, a compliment. You are so respectful and you're so diligent, but I reject this stereotype thrust upon me because I am not a pawn in your game of white supremacy. I am not here to be absorbed into your whiteness. Please refrain from touting the diversity of your workplace to me because there is that handful of Asian guys you work with. I do not believe you've graduated from racism because you have Asian neighbors. The model minority myth of the 1960s declared that Asians are prime for assimilation while blacks are too outspoken, too militant, too politicized, too radical to be assimilated into white society. Today, the model minority myth views Asian Americans as white adjacent, honorary whites, thereby erasing the existence of Asian Americans entirely. You see, in the future, white supremacy will no longer need white people, according to the artist Lorraine O'Grady. The longer we tell and embrace this story of the model minority, rather than interrogating and dismantling it, we are shoring up the apparatus that perpetuates white supremacy power in all our systems. It's already working. Poet Kathy Park Hong writes, Whiteness has already recruited us to become their junior partners in genocidal wars, conscripted us to be anti-black and colorist, to work for and even head corporations that scythe off immigrant jobs like heads of wheat. Conscription is everyday and unconscious. After all, as scholar Charles W. Mills writes, whiteness is not really a color at all, but a set of power relations. What shall we do then to subvert these power relations and build that beloved community of which we speak often but exists yet beyond our reach? How are we, how am I, complicit in establishing, upholding, embracing, and benefiting from these existing power relations? Today, I have told you who I am not. I am not your stereotype, your scapegoat, your token, your model minority, your pawn. I am not your Asian. I don't tell you these things because I want you to see me. I challenge you to look and see yourself. I am not your Asian. And if you invented any part of this construct that I am not, then you have to find out why. 
The future of the country depends on that, whether or not it is able to ask that question. Please join me in singing hymn 170, We Are a Gentle, Angry People, verses 1, 2, and 4. Sunday, we pause to honor the personal joys and sorrows you have shared with us. We honor joys and sorrows by placing a single pebble in a communal bowl of water to symbolize the ways that individual lives ripple out and touch us all. Today, I place stones I gathered from the pebbly beaches of Northeast Taiwan as a reminder that stories from the Asian diaspora around the world and here in the United States and in our community are stories that shape this congregation. It seems only fitting to use these stones in this ritual of family, of connection, and of community. Um, so congratulations to you all. That was all the joy, those were all the joys and sorrows shared today. Um, oh, and one final stone for all that is left unsaid, wherever you are, whoever you are, all that you are holding in your heart today. So that's for you. I now invite you to join me for a brief moment of reflection and prayer. Spirit of life and light, 
the spirit that exists in the in-betweens in this wild, wondrous web of life, in the invisible connections that bind us to each other and to all that lives and breathes and grows and moves in this earth. We honor this moment of gathering, of reflection, of inquiry, of struggle, of anger, of stillness, of remembrance. For it is this energy that is created by the act of our gathering that transforms the world, that breaks open hearts and minds and barriers and facades and pierces to the deepest realities of who we are and what this world is. Through pain and uncertainty and grief and challenge, through joy and celebration and hope for the future, may we hold each other and ourselves with tenderness and grace and compassion and curiosity for the courage to live in community, for the strength to see ourselves, for the boldness to simply be. Amen. Blessed be. Thank you all for joining us today. I leave you now with these words, an excerpt from the poem, Home, a Transitive, by Tibetan-American poet, Sering Wangwo Dompa. Belonging, a verb and a strip of hope I fed with orchids on sale and recipes I brought from a country I now hover over in virtual maps. I twist time 
as a child tightens the cap of a bottle, the right direction a consequence of loss, the left the vocabulary of departure. I am walking backwards, hoping to reverse, to unsee what I cannot forget, to leave something else as trails to find a way forward. Be well, UUCC. Can't nobody stop us. Ain't nobody trying. Can't nobody stop us. Can't nobody stop us.
I've been missing you 